All right, everyone. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you so much for joining us for the last session of the conference here in the small theater um, with Danny Hernandez. Uh, my name is Eric Floyd. It's my pleasure to introduce Danny, and I'll be doing the Q&A afterwards as well. Um, for those of you who don't know, Danny Hernandez is a research scientist at Anthropic, where the primary focus of his research is on measuring and forecasting AI progress. Uh, he's best known for his work showing that the amount of compute going into training the largest ML models grew by approximately 10x per year between 2012 and 2017. Um, in his free time, you might catch him in a park with his headphones in, dancing like he's in an Apple commercial. Um, so uh, we'll welcome Danny here in just a second. Um, but I do want to remind you first, uh, take out your cell phones, uh, both to put them on silent and to open up the Swapcard app. Uh, you can click on the live discussion button under this event um, and submit your questions there as Danny is going through his presentation. Um, we are recording this event, so if you raise your hand and shout something out, the people at home won't be able to hear you. Um, but do go ahead and put your questions in the chat there, and then we'll get to them in the Q&A. And you can also upvote questions from other people that you'd like to see asked. All right, uh, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Danny Hernandez. Hello, uh, I'm Danny, um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, AI progress and why I think it's, why I feel like betting on AI, uh, that it's kind of fair, it feels like an analogous situation to, to Moore's Law uh, in the 1970s. And like, but, but before, I guess, we talk about AI progress, uh, it's easier for people to think about uh, how AI progress might be decision relevant to them than to kind of build a model as to what they expect, right? So some ways you might kind of phrase this is, uh, you know, um, in the BioAnchors report, like that, that kind of Ajaya wrote and that Holden summarizes, they talk about, you know, Ajaya thought that, you know, there was like a 10% chance of transformative AI by, by 2036 or a 50% chance by 2055, or, or an 80% chance by 2100. And kind of the question here is like, if you believed one of those things, or, or just wrote down some number and you're, some numbers there, and you're just like, if I believed something different about AI progress, like int intuitively believed it, wasn't really deferring to somebody else, but it, it felt like a real number that I could make decisions on, you know, how might I act differently? You know, would, would I take some AI course? Would I kind of, would I change my kind of career trajectory? Um, as like a college student, would I kind of mid-career give up like what I, my current trajectory in like physics or, or space or space policy or, or something else that I feel like I'm good at um, and focus on say AI safety or, or ops at an AI organization or, or AI policy? Um, and this is like a, a real kind of question that I interact with people a lot uh, on. Um, so when we make offers at Anthropic, I usually send people an email and offer to talk with them about AI progress in case that's like relevant or interesting to them uh, in making their decision. And most people uh, say yes, and for most people it's relevant. And so this is kind of like a, an attempt to kind of, kind of scale that, that conversation. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I, would, what I would have you think about first. And you know, different people have, have very different beliefs here. Somebody might be like, if there's a 5% chance of, of AGI in, in 100 years, then that's what I want to work on. And I also know other people who have said something like, you know, if they thought there was a 50% chance of, of AGI in five years, that then they would switch from working on like technical capabilities work to safety work. So it's like people's decision boundaries here just like vary immensely and it like you can figure it out relatively quickly. Those conversations usually take minutes. Whereas the conversations about 
what do they actually believe? What is their, like, developing a view on AI progress? That, that actually usually takes more like an hour. So I, I would kind of start with this. And so, yeah, the, the takeaway that I want people to have kind of by the end of the talk is, like, their own intuition around, uh, around AI progress to be able to kind of feel like they can put numbers on, on things like that if, if they want uh, and that they're not really necessarily deferring to other people there. And you know, then, then, then to act on that um, if, if, if it's decision relevant. So we're gonna start by kind of talking about uh, three exponentials, uh, two of which I worked on. People have probably like seen, seen some of these graphs before, but we're gonna kind of do the additional thing of trying to think about like, okay, like how long do we expect these trends to keep going? We're gonna, uh, while, while looking at each of them, and they're, they're kind of a, the foundation for uh, the second half of the talk where we try and think about like how much progress, how to translate progress in effective compute into some intuition as to how much AI progress do I expect to come from like 10x or 100x or 1,000x uh, kind of more effective compute in the largest ML systems. And so, yeah, most people are familiar with, with Moore's Law. Um, some things like, well, well, one way that I uh, find Moore's Law particularly inspiring was there were researchers and, and uh, engineers at, at Xerox Park in, in the 80s that were like, that took it seriously, what if, what if Moore's Law just continues uh, for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years? And kind of from that uh, line of thinking, you can kind of almost trivially predict um, the iPhone, like, like mobile phones, like ubiquitous mobile phones, ubiquitous PCs are gonna happen in the 90s, in, in, in 2000, et cetera. And like the, the, hard, like the hard thing is like, or the insightful thing is thinking about will Moore's Law continue? But that's like most, that, that's like the part of that prediction that's doing most of the work. Um, not are computers useful. Uh, and so, and also they had kind of access, like they didn't, I don't, they weren't really aware of this analysis, but if they'd done enough analysis, that prediction actually looks uh, like a pretty safe bet because we were seeing exponential progress in hardware uh, if we kind of widen our view and don't just think about transistors and, and semiconductors. We were seeing exponential progress in, in hardware with vacuum tubes and, and punch cards kind of like for, for 70 years. And so thinking that exponential progress for 30 years or 20 years, uh, that starts to look quite likely if you're like, this trend has been exponential and about these terms for, for a long time. It's harder to think about hardware progress more recently. Um, this graph is kind of like, it's kind of messy and I don't, I don't expect you to parse it, but it's harder to think about what's, what's kind of going on right now. But the best I could like do, the, like the best graph, this is the best graph that I've kind of seen and it's on, uh, what, they, what they did was they looked at GPUs because I care about hardware progress on GPUs now more than I care about hardware progress on, on CPUs when thinking about AI. And they looked at GPUs that ML researchers use and looked at, okay, what does the trend seem to be there? And the trend there seemed to be about Moore's Law, about 2x every two years. Um, and so I, I think this is like, this, it's, it's kind of hard for me to extrapolate past that, but I think just like what's been going on recently um, is like pretty Im Im important and, and informative here. The like, I think it's totally plausible that, you know, 
GPUs will kind of like start to hit like what the curve that CPUs are on, which is more like 2x every four years. That seems plausible that that'll happen at some point in time, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. Um, but for now, recently progress in GPUs seems, seems like strong, seems like the same as, as been what's as the story for a while. Um, and that kind of progress in CPUs is a lot of what drove AI progress, uh, I think, for a long time. Um, so if you look at like the Perceptron, like the like what like kind of the like a very early learning system, um, and like Linet, like the handwriting system that like Jan LeCun made uh, that used convolutional nets. Um, the difference in the amount of compute those two systems used is like basically entirely explained by Moore's law. Like they didn't like Jan LeCun didn't use more money on his system. He just it's just Moore's law happens for you know for 40 years and then, and then now he can make something that can do handwriting recognition and he, he couldn't, like that would have been impractical in the 60s. Um, but then in 2012 when people got really excited uh, about AlexNet, which could just do image recognition, say like 10% better than like the, the kind of best like handcrafted systems of the time that it might have represented like 20 or 40 years worth of progress as the rate of progress was happening um, before in that, in that same domain. Um, then people started just investing uh, just much more. Um, they started uh, that, that kind of like the amount of compute that started was in those, uh, the largest ML system was growing at 10x per year. And maybe like the, a way to think about that now is that, you know, in order to, that, that compute and spending was what was driving most of progress during that period of time, it was the largest exponential. And that if you didn't understand how much compute a system used, it was very hard to understand how to be, how impressed to be by it, right? Um, that, you know, it could be that this system was mostly a scaling up of an existing thing um, without really advancing algorithms at all, um, or it could have been like a large algorithmic advancement and like without understanding the compute aspect of, of what it used, it was, it was hard to understand what was going on. Um, and that, that slowed down. Uh, but it is still a fast exponential and, uh, so far. And you know, when you're multiplying three exponentials together, you care about each exponential. Uh, and so you know, between GPT-3 and uh, Palm, which is like a more, more kind of recent result, um, the Palm, Palm used eight times more compute uh, two years later. Um, hardware progress explains 2x of that, so that's still the amount of money people put, are putting into the largest ML systems growing by something like 2x a year, uh, very like loosely. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's hard to say what's going to happen to this kind of now. There's, there's like a, you know, a recession or, or something like that. And so maybe this will become flat, maybe this exponential will, will go down. But you know, when you're trying to project this exponential forward, you, know, you want to know kind of what's been happening with it, with it recently. Um, the third exponential is kind of, is the hardest uh, to think about. Um, the other two graphs were like very like clean, uh, clean units. Um, but another exponential that like is very important is um, to understand is algorithmic efficiency. So over time, you just you have kind of better software, better algorithms, and you can you can make uh, the same. Well, you can make and that makes you make new and better systems, but also a way that's particularly measurable is it, it lets you create the same capability with, with less compute over time. And this is just a very measurable, understandable way to think about progress and put in the same units as everything else. And so if we, we use that lens, then 
if we look at AlexNet, which we kind of we talked about at the beginning, uh, it became something like 45 times cheaper, 44 times cheaper to make something as good as AlexNet uh, in 2019. Um, that's kind of like a loose estimate where you just kind of took the systems that people trained and approximately the way they trained it and were like, what if I just stopped training early? Uh, how much compute did it take to get to this level of performance? Um, and this, uh, this trend was, was, again, faster than Bohr's Law. That's 2x every 16 months. Um, and you know, like I was saying earlier, we have, we have all these exponentials multiply, so it's, it's really important that we measure each one of them. Uh, so algorithmic efficiency is more, like I said, more, more hard to think about. Um, like, and some of, the, some of the more recent things, it's even just kind of hard to know like, how important they actually are. Some of them claim a lot, but it's, it's hard to say. But something that's kind of solid is that uh, the transformer, which is like the ML, the, the, the architecture uh, that, that like, basically almost all language models use now, uh, that seems to have been something like a 50 to 100x gain. Um, and that happened in, in 2015. So if you tried to measure like how much cheaper did it make it to, to, tra to train a translation system um, as good as like the previous best translation system, or if you think about how much cheaper did it make it to you know make GPT-2 out uh, if you had like extrapolated scaling laws that were for LSTMs, you know this was like a 50 to 100x kind of increase in this algorithmic efficiency for the size models we have now. Um, and so algorithmic progress is hard, one, one part of algorithmic progress that's harder to think about is it's spiky sometimes. You can have like, break, you seem to have breakthroughs that like seem on, like to not happen in hardware spending, right? You, you don't have one year of hardware where you just have a 50x gain. Um, we ha like haven't really observed that. Um, but that can happen for algorithmic efficiency, but you could also see that smooth progress that we saw before, and I think you kind of could think about both of them separately. But we also see kind of large, if, if we're looking for what the, the, the smooth progress might be in language models, we also see um, large recent progress where chinchilla, a result that was like was this year, which was kind of very like straightforward and like boring in some way, is like models were being not trained for enough, enough data, enough tokens. Um, the models were kind of too big and not being trained long enough. And just training them for long enough made it 3x cheaper uh, to make, you know, to make uh, to to get to the same level of performance, approximately. If you look at that palm result, uh, you know you could make something as good as that with with three x or less compute, like three x less compute, by just kind of training a smaller model for longer. Um, and so those kinds of, of those are the kinds of sizes of gains that we still kind of see in language models. Um, and some maybe some more of the intuition around this is that like. I think uh, you can think about both Moore's law and this algorithmic efficiency as there is a learn by doing curve, where if I built two cars and then four cars and then eight cars and then 16 cars, every time I built uh, twice as many cars, um, I get some like f I get a bit better at building cars, uh, and maybe I get like you know maybe it becomes 10% cheaper or something to build the next round of cars, um, and so though we've seen those in kind of like aircraft. Um, DNA, uh, there's like lots of these kind of curves like where that's like the underlying theory as to like why you see exponential progress is that you, got, you put in exponential amounts of effort. And so we're getting some idea of like what is the learn by doing curve look like um, for the ML problems that we care about now. And uh, this is kind of giving some of that idea. 
Uh, and then there are things that are like, that people are excited about, but like we don't really even know how good they are. Um, I put this thing up here called uh, talking about search, where like there's a thing, there's a there's a system that people are excited about, where ML systems have like a database that they kind of do a nearest neighbor's lookup to see you know what what is a situation like that and inject it into the context. And the details don't really matter, but like you know the the largest claim they make in that paper is like there's a, a situation in which it's 20x better, in which maybe copying is very helpful or there's kind of this this stuff that was uh, that was um, where you just t insert into an ML system that you just tell it like to think step by step about a problem and that often makes it way better at at what it's doing and those things I it's actually kind of hard to say like how good is that even so just even making an estimate of like how good are recent things is kind of its own hard problem that you know this is what I could do in like half an hour and I didn't you know try I didn't try to make like a paper out of out of updating this talk. Um, so another thing that I think is like very important about uh, algorithmic efficiency is I think there's a way to kind of zoom out the way we did with the way we did with kind of like vacuum tubes and transistors where if we look in the 90s and I think the like class of problem that's most like appropriate to think of um, that we have like that we have data on uh, is this problem called like mixed integer integer programming, which was this like very valuable operations research problem, which is kind of like if you have x, say you have like a bunch of equations like x plus y plus z is like less than ten. You just have like hundreds or thousands of those like equations. Then can you find an integer solution to this problem? And this was like important. Uh, if you're doing like planning or logistics like Amazon or, or the military or something had to like do this kind of thing so people put a lot of money into, into solving these problems um, and we just got exponentially kind of better at these problems for a long period of time again kind of faster than, than Moore's law and I think um, what is happening kind of there is that optimization itself is a thing that you can kind of do this like learn by doing curve on um, optimization feels optimizable uh, uh, to me. Um, and so that's, that's kind of some, some intuition for it. Um, and so I, there's, um, there, there's this like library in which you can make um, XKCD graphs that I kind of like uh, as like feeling kind of like you're drawing something on a whiteboard um, because it's just kind of like I'm like drawing something that like kind of represents my intuition um, but it's definitely not like, like, like the axes are kind of changing. It's not like there's like there, you have to kind of squint for, for for it to actually be like a graph that makes sense. But if I put the last two, if I put kind of everything I've like a lot of things I've said on this graph, then what I kind of see is like uh, software has been kind of getting um, so, like software like optimization software of interest has been has been seeing exponential progress for maybe you know. 30 years and like it that happening for another 20 years that feels like a reasonably safe bet that seems like kind of likely to happen or like a median outcome or something um, where if I was trying if I was saying that it was going to happen for another 100 years and we'd seen it for 30 years that that seems like I'm extrapolating really far um, whereas like yeah the characteristic or if I was extrapolating it for like you know two years and we'd seen a 30 year thing that would be like a very very light extrapolation um, and so this kind of seems I don't know kind of medium-ish or like safe-ish um, to me, and I think that this is decision relevant to people I kind of talk to, 
in that, for me, AI kind of feels analogous to like, um, like we kind of talked about some of these things, like what if you thought there was a 10% chance of AGI in, in 2036, and like how, what that, what, what would that, how would that be decision relevant to you? Um, but some people, you know, people have kind of, people have like families, people have, you know, career goals, they want to work on interesting problems. Like in some way, I think of the default outcome as like working on AI is kind of like working on like the web in like 2005 or something is like the thing that feels analogous to like people like in our generation, um, where it's just like, it just goes pretty well, right? Like it grows, there's a bunch of interesting problems, like you might not make like Airbnb, but like it, it kind of like goes fine for you, like even if, even if like, this kind of like tail payoff like that you were like kind of hoping for and that was like the main driver, it doesn't work out. And like in some way it's like both like the best expected value bet, but also a safe bet um, is how, how it feels to me. Um, so so that, that's kind of this this kind of the, the first kind of half um, of thinking about, about AI progress. Um, the next thing that we're going to try to do is okay, we have we have all these exponentials, right? Like two X a year. 2x every 16 months, like, well, that still doesn't translate into kind of things that we, we kind of care about, right? Maybe we care about self-driving cars or, or, or programming assistance or, or, or TAI or, or POSTA or something like that. Um, so the next kind of thing that I want to give people an intuition for is thinking about a like GPT-2 to GPT-3 size jump, because that's like a lot of my own mental model when I try and think about AI progress. Uh, oh yeah. So GPT-2 was was fun. Um, that was like the thing that I like remember about GPT-2 was like I played with this thing and it was fun. And you take it to AI conferences and the AI researchers wanted to play with it. Um, it was the most interesting thing kind of there to do was like not to talk to people about their papers, but like let's put things into GPT-2 and see like where it's smart and where it's dumb. Uh, and so to give you an idea of this like funness thing. Um, I like, I'm going to read like my, my, my favorite, uh, completion I ever got from GPT-2. Um, so the prompt was, uh, breaking Paris Hilton has a new machine learning startup. She's partnered with Kanye West to launch Yeezy AI. That's my prompt. The completion is, uh, in a series of tweets, she explains that her platform focuses on giving customized AI that helps people build, create beautiful personal brands. The new company is called Yeezy AI, and according to Paris Hilton, uh, it will help create personalized AI for fashion brands, as well as helping fashion brands create products. Yeezy is launching its hashtag AI for AI program on Friday. This will be available for all of these influencers, hashtag AI for AI, dash Paris Hilton, at Paris Hilton, November 19th, 2017. It's a big deal, uh, but it's also important for a platform to be differentiated. Uh, and then I just, I just have read that to like tons of people being like, look at this thing, GPT did this, that was like fun. Uh, and that's like one of the ways that AI researchers uh, understand kind of what models are capable is they just play with them a bunch. Um, and that's, that's something that, that you can do and I'll, I'll kind of tell you, you, sh you should do it later. Uh, but GPT-3 felt kind of, started to feel kind of useful, um, which, which kind of feels different than fun. Uh, and so, the single like most like under like broadly understandable thing that GPT-2 could GPT-3 could do was like pass a kind of like I don't know a kind of like written Turing test or something where it could write a two to three paragraph like news article from like CNBC or Axios 
that like the people that, you know, that like mechanical turkers or whoever was kind of used to like evaluate, like couldn't really differentiate from, from actual articles. Um, and so, yeah, maybe the, the, the half, the like say, say half the articles that they're looking at are from GPT-3, half are, re are real, and like their chance of like, of, of getting, of correctly labeling it is maybe like 52% plus or minus three, so like maybe they have no ability to tell, maybe it's, maybe it's small, um, but it's just really difficult for them to tell like who wrote this article. Um, and if you looked at something like GPT-2, uh, which had, you know, closer to uh, a billion parameters, then maybe now uh, their accuracy is more like, more like 65%. Um, so there's just a bunch of times that they catch it kind of making an obvious mistake. Um, and that, that kind of goes away. Uh, and so th that's kind of the most broadly understandable thing, but, but I think another interesting lens in understanding GPT-2 to GPT-3 is what ML researchers were most impressed by. So the thing that ML researchers were most impressed by um, was like, was, was few-shot learning or in-context learning. The name of the paper was language models are few-shot learners. And this kind of, what, what we see in this graph that's kind of hard, like a lot, there's a lot of stuff that you probably can't read, but what's, what there is here is there's 40 uh, ML evaluations, things like addition and subtraction and like figuring out, like disambiguating a sentence, answering multiple choice questions, and like all of those are the faint lines, and then if we just take the average of all of those performances, then we kind of get smooth progress as we scale this model up. And when we give the model a single example of the kind of problem and the answer we want it to solve, you know, it gets a bunch better. Um, so maybe, maybe for a GPT-2 size model, it, it gets like maybe 2% better when you give it an example, and for a GPT-3 size model, maybe it's more like 5 or 7%. And what, is like, on, like one of the reasons this is important is that one of the main ways that ML researchers would describe AI systems as like dumb is they just need way more data than people would need. So something like AlphaGo uh, consumed like a thousand times more Go games than any person could ever play. And there, so there's a way in which that kind of feels dumb. And if I am trying to teach you something, like you know, if I'm giving you feedback at work and I have to tell you the same thing like 20 times, like that's really frustrating, you seem really dumb, um, that compared to if I have to tell you it 10 times or two times or one time. Um, and so that's a way in which models feel dumb and why, why they feel impressive where they're just like, oh, this thing, it's starting to get better at this meta-learning thing that we, we, we care a lot about. Um, one kind of other like, uns like w important aspect of understanding what happened there is there was this smooth progress in which in general it got better, but it also got much, much better um, unpredictably at some things. So it used to basically be unable to do arithmetic, uh, like it can't add you know, two-digit numbers, um, and it doesn't look like it's ever, it doesn't look like it's gonna be able to add two-digit numbers for a long time, um, and then suddenly it gets much, much better at that. Um, and so when you're thinking about AI progress, you can like, it's kind of straightforward to extrapolate how it'll get better in, in some general sense, but then in specific senses, it's more unpredictable. Uh, and so yeah, I think you know, one of the easy ways to kind of get a better understanding of, of kind of progress is to kind of pick some, some kind of gap in compute and kind of try and understand intuitively what did that gap get me. Um, it's, you can play with GPT-2 online because there are weights that were released and people host it. You can also use the OpenAI API to get like some intuition as to how much, how much compute uh, matters here. Um, 
And now we're gonna kind of, we're gonna try and pull those, those two sections together um, into making your own forecast. But first I'm gonna give you some context about when other people, when, when about AI researchers making forecasts and about forecasters trying to make forecasts about AI progress. So um, a thing I think is, was like a, a recent survey came out that, that uh, Bao Bao did, which was like a follow-up to, to Katya's survey in 2016. So in that time period, uh, you know, a bunch of things that they used to think were going to be some of the hardest AI researchers who had written a paper that had gotten accepted to a conference, uh, like a, a reasonably good conference, uh, they, they just updated their, their beliefs on some of the hardest tasks um, by a lot. And I kind of trust this more than their discussion about AGI or H HLMI because uh, there's a lot of um, like baggage around talking about AGI in the AI community. There's like been a bunch of over, over kind of promising in the past. So there's like a real like aversion to talking about that in like a reasonable way. But um, you know, these things are not that, so I think they're easier to talk about. Um, and so the really things you think of as people who are really smart if they can do this thing, like perform well in a Putnam competition, which is like the top math competition for universities, or write a New York Times bestseller. You know, this like three years of progress pushed people from thinking that would happen in like median time 2060 to more like 2030 or 2035. And you could think about three years of progress during this period as like two GPT-2 to GPT-3 size jumps, because that's about how much compute the like largest models had access to effective compute the largest models had access to um, in, during this period. Um, and then for context, GPT-2 to GPT-3, you know, that happened, that happened in, a, in a one year period, but that was like a large scaling up in like one specific domain. And then like another thing that I think is helpful to think about when thinking about a GPT-2 to GPT-3 sized update is that I would talk to lots of AI researchers about, um, you know, thinking about, you know, uh, AGI or, or TAI, and most of them you know, didn't want to talk about that subject. They just thought that subject was kind of boring um, or like unscientific. It just wasn't in like the Overton window to discuss this topic. Uh, it wasn't worthy of like serious discussion from scientists. Um, and that was like the objection that you mostly got, but you kind of stopped getting that objection around GPT-3. And so you could also try to think about like how large of like that chunk of work kind of moved that Overton window and like wh whatever result, like how many chunks of like, how much progress moves an Overton window versus just accomplishes the thing um, is like an outside view you could also try to use when thinking about like how much progress happened in this period. Um, so then a bunch, uh, Jacob Steinhardt uh, got a bunch of forecasters to forecast problems that I was, like two problems that I was quite interested in. Uh, one, is you know when will a bunch of like on these, there's these hard benchmarks where one has like a bunch of LSAT and like MCAT like uh, questions and like just just hard questions that like if you took uh, experts from a variety of fields like they're all kind of uh, hard questions in all of those fields and how well do all those people do um, and the amount of progress that that group um, it was only for five thousand dollars but that group of regular forecasters expected to happen um, in five years happened in one. Um, and so there is this way in which predicting AI progress is counterintuitive. Um, a lot of times when people make benchmarks now, they get solved in one or two years. Um, and it used to be that that benchmark would be solved in 10 years. Like, you know, ImageNet, I don't know, the ImageNet was made, I think, maybe 2008, 2006. And, like, maybe you consider it solved in, like, I don't know, uh, 
2015 or 17 or something like that. Um, people, it started to be like boring and to, to twerk on in some, in some sense. Um, and so this is just very different, uh, like that it's like almost hard to like make, to define like where AI was going next and then just kind of, kind of gets there. Um, and so to kind of combine together the whole first section, what I did was I made this like table of uh, a bunch of assumptions that I think are like some, some, a variety of assumptions that all feel kind of plausible to me, um, where you're like, maybe, like if we go on the right column, uh, maybe Moore's law, maybe hardware progress, just like the exponent gets reduced by a factor of two. That seems plausible, or maybe it stays the same. Um, maybe algorithmic efficiency is like similar to how it was in uh, that kind on like on progress on uh, image recognition. Maybe it's more similar to what's happened in uh, language modeling for the last like seven years. Maybe it's like closer to that exponent. Um, maybe spending like kind of continues. Well, spending just probably goes down. Um, but like these model, these the, these estimates are like kind of close to the biological anchors things um, report. Um, but spend, spending, they're like higher and lower versions of spending, but it probably decreases because it's getting a lot more expensive. Um, it used to cost, you know, dollars to train the biggest ML models that people train, and now, now you could, now if you try to estimate POM, maybe that's more like $10 million or something like that, um, where GPT-T estimates online are often a million dollars. So it's like, it's starting to be more and more expensive to just inc like double the amount of like compute of the biggest models, so that, that trend might go down. Um, and this kind of this yeah this this kind of assumes GPT two to GPT three is a, a 300x effective compute jump and that there wasn't any algorithmic progress between them. Um, but so when I try to like summarize this thing, I like had all of these different like assumptions and things that might slow down, and I'm like okay in the next ten years I kind of expect something between two and three GPT two to GPT three size jumps, and then the ten years after that maybe more like one and a half to two. Um, and you could try to figure out what your own expectations are. But then, so that's like half of the problem decomposed, and then the next problem is like, okay, what do I expect to like come at from that? So anything that I'm interested in, if I'm interested in, you know, if I'm interested in pasta, if I'm interested in self-driving cars, then I can be like, um, or, 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 or AGI, and it, it doesn't matter, it's fine if you don't know one of those terms, um, that I think about like, what's the probability that like one of those jumps leads to that thing? And you know, I want to have like some humility there because, like I said, AI progress is surprising. Um, and then I think about okay, now two and three and four, and I, I find this like an intuitive way to try to hold like the whole field's progress in in my head. Um, and so yeah, I want to like just kind of remind people of like the initial uh, prompt, which was like, what would be like decision relevant to like you? Like, what would change your agenda? What would change like what you? Uh, what, what you like focus on in, in your career or that like small step where you like apply somewhere or like start taking some like course at, at night or, or whatever it is, whatever like the next meaningful step might be for you to like think about that and then be like what would I have to believe to like have that step make sense to take uh, and then to think about that in terms of you know what, what we just kind of uh, what we just kind of talked about um, you know two to five GPT like you know say what was it here? It was like three, three to five GPT, three, three, three to five of these jumps in 20 years, um, and then yeah, what what that might lead. Um, so yeah, you should you should you should make your own forecasts. I'm here to try to help you make your own forecasts. I'm not asking you to defer 
to me. I'm not trying to, and I'm not trying to present uh, prep my own forecasts and convince you of those. Um, I just, I just, and you know, it could be that the thing that makes sense to do is to apply to Anthropic. That'd be cool. That's where I work. I recommend it. Um, but I'd also be very happy if you just, you know, took those steps towards some direction that you believed in. So I, I have this is questions and discussions, and I put some questions, ideas up, and idea, ideas for questions up here. But you know, you should ask whatever questions you want. All right. Uh, thank you, Danny. And thank you to everyone who's already submitted questions on Swapcard. Just a reminder, you can click on the Live Discussion tab and then go to the Questions sub-tab um, and upvote questions that are already there or ask your own. Um, and we'll do our best to get to those if we have time. Danny's also making himself available for office hours after this. So there'll be a chance to talk with him in person for a half hour if you, if you would like. Um, so Denny, uh, in the audience, we actually have uh, a lead author on the GPU post that you cited. Oh yeah, the epic post, cool. Yeah, um, uh, and he, he's wondering, um, the authors of that paper think that the trend of ML GPUs can be partly explained by ML labs just selecting better GPUs rather than the GPUs actually getting better at, at a pretty fast rate. Do you have thoughts on that thesis? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's just, it's like the best graph I currently have. Like, I think my version of that graph that I think would be best or something is like, well, one of the weirdnesses in the ML GPU, so a lot of those GPUs are things that like uh, academics use under their computer because there's like a way in which the GPU market's like artificially uh, strange in that if you want to use your GPU in a data center, I think it costs like two to three times more. Um, than to use the same GPU that like to, to buy that like gaming GPU and like put it under your desk and have some like equivalently good GPU that was like made intentionally somewhat worse. Um, that's just Nvidia just has like a lot of market power right now, um, and so I think a lot of those GPUs are things that like academics figured out. This is the best GPU to buy that doesn't have this price distortion, and then they make like a homunculus cluster of that and like 20 other GPUs in like cabinets in their lab or something. And so, I don't know, it depends on if you're like more interested in like what you think the ML researchers have to pay versus like what's actual progress on the kind of GPUs the ML researchers care about. And I think it's like more the second thing is what that graph is. Um, and like there's some other version of it you could care about, which is, um, you know, of the, of the GPUs that actually are used in the papers that like where the most, that are like where the most expensive experiments are run how much, uh, what's been happening with the prices of those GPUs, I think is like another like reasonable best graph. Um, but yeah, it's the best, it's the best graph, best graph we currently got. Nice. Uh, I know there's some projects out there like Fafnir that are trying to get compute clusters for academics specifically. Do you, uh, do you feel excited about those projects? And, yeah, well, I, yeah, Nova's great. Yeah. Hoffnir, <laughs> I don't know how to spell, say Hoffnir, but it's great. <laughs> um, I think like there's a way in which, um, let's see, academia has this like, a uh, large um, problem in that they don't really have a way to hire engineers. Um, they like can't pay them that as much or like give them as much career progression. And so a lot of times the engineers and academic labs are like basically um, people getting PhDs that like kind of become the lab's engineer um, and then like leave and like kind of do it weirdly because they could have gotten more money and like probably more status other places. Um, and so it's a kind of like labor of love uh, and like strange like fit kind of thing. Um, and I feel like 
that is like Hoffner is like addressing some portion of this problem where there's like a, a, a problem with like the market for academia and, and engineers. Um, and yeah, I know like Sam Bowman's like looking for engineers in that direction. And like, you know, if that, if you're like, I would like to address that market failure, then maybe talk to Sam Bowman. Yeah, cool. And the engineers out there, definitely. Also apply up. to Anthropic, but yeah, do, do both of those things. Um, on the, the topic of GPUs, uh, someone in the audience was hoping to hear a bit more about how you came up with your own predictions on like how fast GPUs would improve in coming years? Oh, uh, I don't know. I didn't think about that a lot. Um, there are like more kind of details. Uh, some, some details are one way, like one way that GPUs could like flatline is uh, a lot of the gains might be from GPUs are like lower precision than they, uh, like ML GPUs are like lower precision in that the number, like the GPU is consuming all of these numbers and in ML those numbers have 16 bits um, and so they, they, they take four times less space than uh, like, and most of the time you use 64-bit numbers or you used to use 64-bit numbers everywhere. So there's a way in which like ML progress has taken advantage of this like thing like called, called reduced precision where it just, you just need your numbers to be like shorter and it's fine. Um, and that might be where like some reasonable portion of the progress came from and that might just end. Um, so there's like ways in which you could think that that's like a reason it's going to end. But then if you go to like, if you look at like Moore's law itself, Moore's law had a bunch of like S curves in it where something would like basically make it seem like Moore's law was going to end in 10 or 15 years and then some new tech, then there'd basically be some new way that progress happened that was like relatively different. Uh, and so I think it's just like really hard to think about. Um, and like, I don't see like physics limits why it ends. I like have like, I don't know, heard, uh, kind of talks from people who think it'll kind of keep going and think that's, think that's plausible. There's all, you could also think of like NVIDIA, just like is NVIDIA an engine that can keep um, like a law going, like uh, Intel kept Moore's law going for the most part and maybe, maybe, maybe it's become an institution that, that kind of can't operate at the same level that it, that it operated at before. Maybe it's decayed and can't keep that, that kind of law going and maybe NVIDIA hasn't. Um, I don't know, those are a bunch of things kind of in, in, in my head, but I think you could argue for lots of, lots of different things. Yeah, certainly lots of variables to consider there. Um, so zooming out from just GPUs for a sec, um, scaling laws seem to fit some of the benchmarks uh, in terms of AI progress, but are spotty on others. Uh, so someone in the audience is, is hoping to know, do you think that scaling is all you need to get from here to you know, potentially transformative AI? Um, I think that's, uh, this is a common question that I think is like not a good way of like it, but I think it's like not the correct question. Um, I mean, there's lots of papers in ML that are like, there's like attention is all you need and there's kind of like, yeah, people ask if scaling is all you need. And I feel like this is kind of a straw man where lots of actual, lots of ML researchers kind of hate scale um, because scale is like engineering and engineering is not like an intellectual problem to them. And so there's lots of like people generating easy arguments to then attack about scaling. Um, and so that's kind of where I would say the scaling is all you need thing. And instead I might, the way I think about scaling more is you have like scaling drives some amount of progress and you have like business as usual progress. Um, so like I'd say like that chinchilla uh, uh, results where people figured out we should train our models for longer. 
like there isn't something like beautiful about this, right? Like there's no like mathematical beauty here. Um, it's just kind of people tuning their models. And like you could put that in like this business as usual kind of progress, like solves some, solves some problems. Um, and like, so one way you could think about it is like, what are there problems where we're going to need some kind of like dramatic insight, kind of like the transformer, which is like this 50x gain, and it could happen at any time, and that's going to drive most of progress, and we're going to be kind of stuck until that kind of thing happens. Um, or, and to what degree is it like that what's going to be what drives progress, or to what degree is it going to be just kind of like these business as usual things, like plus scale or something? And that's kind of more how I'd cast it. And like, I don't know, they both, they both kind of seem important since, um, you know, and that, but I would just try and put them in like units of effective compute, and the transformer was 50x, so that was a lot. Um, and you know, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'd, where where I would leave the the scaling thing. But we could we could talk about more about um, scaling laws, uh, generally. Cool. It's a useful reframing. Um, so obviously, you know, there's a lot of like technical progress to be predicted here, um, but there's also geopolitical factors that you know have an input on AI progress. Um, so we have a question from the audience: How will your AI forecasting take into account? the current AI arms race with China and the US, and also the massive chip manufacturing reshoring efforts and investment in AI innovation by the US government, factors like this. Um, you know, in particular, we have the CHIPS Act that recently passed Congress just about a month ago. Um, yeah, how much do you take into account factors like this when you're trying to extrapolate trends? Um, I mean, I, I, I haven't done any like adjustment for the CHIPS Act, though that feels like plausibly important. Um, I, yeah, I think like, I mean, okay, maybe like one other clarifying thing or something was just like, I spent like maybe three or four years where like these were the primary problems I was thinking about. Um, and now I like do a lot of just kind of like scaling, more like just kind of scaling laws research, um, just trying to make ML systems better. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not just kind of spending all of my time like trying to make these kind of forecasts better, but I, over time, I was just like, okay, well, I have like a model in my head that's like kind of intuitive, and, and maybe I should, should should scale that to like other well-intentioned people. Um, and so, yeah, I have I have I, that level of details, like kind of thing. I just haven't thought of at all. Yeah, fair enough. Um, is there any kind of data or information out there that you don't currently have that would be sort of most useful for improving AI timelines forecasting? Um. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I like, I think that it's just kind of like, you just kind of pick an exponential and figure out like which of these exponentials can I get to have better accuracy? And you could like find the most productive thing in each of them. Like for instance, like Moore's Law, you might like, that might be the kind of thing that super forecasters could do like a good job on, because like you don't need AI knowledge, like you, you more care about hardware, exp like, and they're, so they're more in like the same like position I feel like they are like at less of a disadvantage than they are in some other of the like on say like algorithmic progress, um, and so like yeah I think I think there's like a promising thing on each of them, and like I would like super forecasters to like predict like the chance of kind of Moore's law stalling in ten years and like spending in in five or ten years um, algorithmic progress I'm like not quite as excited by just predictions there I'd like them I'd like people to more just kind of make better measurements of the things we've already kind of done. Uh, in like that kind of style we've we've kind of done because um, like like I said I spent like half an hour trying to be like what happened with algorithmic progress in the last like two years and like can I summarize that and like yeah that's like not a great way to measure measure a thing like.
somebody could spend a month and do a better job. Yeah. Cool. Some low-hanging fruit out there for people. Um, so you mentioned that trying to think in terms of how many like GPT-2 to GPT-3 size jumps um, is a good way to sort of frame one's intuition for their own thoughts on AI progress. Um, if you don't want to reveal your, your own numbers here, uh, feel free to pass. But someone in the audience was wondering if you could sort of go through various useful technical benchmarks and think how many of those size jumps would we need to, to get there. So things like self-driving cars or useful personal assistance for most jobs, um, systems that can do original research. Um, if you have estimates or just like thoughts on how you would go about thinking about this question. Yeah, I mean, I'll say like a few things, but like I think the self-driving cars is like kind of safer or something to talk about. And yeah, to me, like I put like a pretty high probability on like one um, jumps kind of addressing that. They seem to like, there's like some regulatory hurdles, but like it seems kind of like they can, they're almost as safe as, as cars right now. Um, it might be expensive to get them to be like two or four X safer if that's what it takes to get like adoption. Um, but I don't, it, it, I don't see like lots of evidence of that. Um, but as far as, yeah, as far as just like being able to like be as good as humans, um, if you think of that as the benchmark rather than widely deployed, then it feels like one jump should be like, I don't know, 60 or 70% chance or something like that. Um, there's a way in which that jump might just be like already low hanging or something in that a lot of those cars just probably have hardware from like two or three years ago and maybe just like, but so maybe the next time they just like upgrade their hardware, that's like enough of a jump. Um, if you listen to like Andre Carpathy's like talk, uh, like like one of his podcasts, he said that like a lot of his effort at, at Tesla is on, on data. So it might be that like you could think about self-driving cars as like you just need like thousands or hundreds of thousands of examples of like confusing things. Like there's a bicycle with like a kid in like the trailer and like a dog running behind it and like how do I parse this thing and like label it and I want like thousands of examples of that rather than like one because like if I ever just see one I'm gonna get really confused and I need that of like every one of those edge cases and like that is like how I get my algorithmic progress with my with my car is like by getting more of these like data examples and like um, and yeah anyway so that that's that's like one thing um, and then like you know if you thought like I think something that I kind of push people to think about or something that like feels kind of defensible to me is if you thought about you know one GPT-3 size jump and like whatever thing it is you care about, whether or not it's like PASTA or TAI or AGI, I feel like you should like think about some low number you think is defensible for one jump, like maybe one or two or 3%, and then kind of push that number up into like what feels defensible to me here. Um, and But like start with one because like often there is something kind of um, that one that one probably happens in like four or five years and like that, that could be decision relevant depending on what your answer to that is. Uh, speaking of these sort of like nearer term technical benchmarks, um, a question from the audience about whether or not this focus on AGI has any kind of trade off with working towards like tangible progress and achievements that we could do in the nearer term. Uh, so they're wondering if we become really convinced and excited that AGI is around the corner, does that sort of decrease our motivation to work on anything that AGI would completely solve if it comes around? Um, uh. Maybe, but like, maybe that would be like correct. So it's kind of like confusing or something. Um, I feel like what happens there, like, like in some way, somebody might be like expressing a difference in like values or something like that with that kind of question. 
where there's like lots of things like really wrong and bad in the world, like people kind of uh, like, I don't know, there's like wealth disparity and like uh, global health problems. And they're just kind of like, what if we just like, are you arguing to kind of like ignore all of these problems or something? Um, and that feels kind of bad. Um, and I'd be like, no, I wouldn't argue to ignore all those problems. I'd just be like, put some amount of resources into both and think hard about that. Um, and, but like in AI itself, like, uh, then I think it's like, oh, then, 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 then it could be like more about um, problems like around like fairness or, or bias might be the other way somebody might, something might be getting at by, by talking about that question. And I think that like question's kind of like important and like belongs on the agenda or something. And maybe I would just like say, I think like the most interesting things that have happened there are like things about like products kind of working versus not working rather than like things that are just kind of like a bit inflammatory. So like with Alexa, like there's a time when I would talk to people and they're just like, I have an Indian accent, so like Alexa doesn't work for me. And like that sucks. Like they're just like, my AI systems are two years behind like people that like speak, you know, uh, that speak without an accent. Um, and, uh, or, you know, uh, I guess like there's, there's kind of, there's like a, a, like a TV show in which like, yeah, if you, if you weren't white, like the water fountain didn't like work for you. Um, and that seems pretty bad if there's no like button to make it work, it's just kind of like insulting. And so I think that's like, there's, that's kind of one thing. And then there's kind of things about like, you know, this, this language model might say something about whether or not you're might, like, might be like more likely to say like uh, a woman is a nurse than like a doctor as like it's completion or something. And I think that's also a harm, but like that, yeah, but like I, I've, I just kind of ha would ask people to be like, okay, which of these kinds of harms like feels kind of bigger to them and like the context around it and, um, and be like, okay, those are, those are also like real, those are all kind of like real problems. And I think the version of those problems that I'm like most interested in are ones that are like problems now and will like still, and like where the problem's framed where it will like still be a relevant problem in the future. Um, like some, I think, yeah. Uh, so, so some of the problems might kind of go away and just kind of be solved, but the other problems you're just like, this represents some, some aspect of some problem that will be continued. And this is like the concrete version of it we could work on now. Yeah, got it. Um, so you mentioned the, the slowing of Moore's law, both as an example of one of these trends sort of eventually falling off, um, and also as like an input into your, your broader predictions about what's going on with AI progress. Um, are there any other bottlenecks that you expect to sort of be critical for whether or not these trends that you're extrapolating continue, such as like diminishing economic returns relative to the cost for larger models? Um, so I think you could think about the investment as like already having responded to that. Um, mm that like in some way Moore's law was responding to the economic value that like continued progress had um, where when you build a fab now, I think the like the new fabs cost like 10 or 20 billion dollars to build and that's like that's just not how expensive they were to build initially. So it, it took all of this progress, it took all of this increased desire to invest to like keep the trend going. Um, and like what I think part of what was happening with you know AI progress you know in 2014 or 2015 is like you know places like Google um, or Facebook or whatever were just like we're really excited about AI and like we're paying AI researchers a lot of money and if like they say they can get more done with with like more money we're like great like give them more money um, 
and that you were they were actually taking more money about as quickly as they could take more money because they had to do engineering in between each year to even be able to use more money effectively. So they're just like this is this, they're like maybe you could even think of it as the, that companies were just like how much money could you actually use and they're like we could use ten times more money and they're like great that's how much more money you get um, until they're until they're kind of like at some point they're like okay now this is actually a lot of money um, now we actually kind of care uh, and like that now there's some different exponential. Um, associated with, with investment. Yeah, nice. We have time for maybe one or two more questions. Um, so just to, to take your advice here, I'd love <laughs> if you could maybe talk a little bit about your personal story of getting excited, you know, forecasting AI progress. Oh, yeah, maybe. that's fun. Yeah. Um, the, uh, let's see. So there was, was a way of kind of tying it in. And I remember, like, a post that Holden like wrote where I think he said he believed believed there was something like a ten percent chance of like transformative AI in like twenty years or something and um, maybe this was in like two thousand seventeen or or sixteen or something like that and I remember being like oh yeah like I believe that too like that's a pretty good argument to work on that thing and the main question was just like could I effectively work on that thing and I just kind of didn't I wasn't really sure of that. Um, but I was like, yeah, that's like a good argument to try, like I should try. Um, and I remember actually being at a EAG and I think Holden like gave maybe a, like talked about some similar questions this morning, but I didn't see it. But he like, it was, there, there was like, there was like a discussion about like, what are like some, some important things to like hire, like to, to get like people to start doing inside the field that like people aren't doing yet. And one of them was about like, you know, applying forecasting to, to AI. And I remember just like being in this audience and being like this kind of like everybody else like disappearing and being like, oh, it's kind of like it's kind of like Holden's talking to me, like, and he's right, and I should just like do that thing, and like I shouldn't need to be surrounded by other people for that point to like land. Mm -hmm. um, but it still like makes the point land more. Um, and then I remember AI and compute. Uh, uh, just being like, oh, that's like the best thing I ever did. Um, so I should probably keep going in that direction. Um, and that was like, and it's kind of weird because I was like six months in to working on, on kind of forecasting. Um, but so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a bit of the personal story. Cool. Thank goodness you were at that EAG. You got some great work out of it. Um, please join me in thanking Danny one more time. And if you'd like to join Danny for office hours, that'll be right now in room E for the next 25 minutes. Thanks so cool. much.